This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that speaks to us in every season. Lord, I pray you would speak to us again today by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Where are you from? I get asked that a lot. I'm never quite sure how to answer it. Usually I ask people to guess, which is actually great fun because they guess amazing places. Sometimes I say Pittsburgh. After all, it's been my home for the last more than 17 years. I could say Pennsylvania. I've lived in the state for nearly 24 years. Or should I say what most people expect me to say, which is, of course, England. Although that doesn't satisfy people because then there's usually a follow-up. Oh, which part? Well, do I say Cheshire, the county where I grew up? Or Manchester, the city where I first uh, worked and had my first home? Or should I say Shropshire? where I lived before coming here, and half of you don't even know where Shropshire is, so after the service you can look it up. It's kind of tricky when you move around. Jesus understands this. If he'd been asked where he came from, I wonder what would he have said? Would he have said Bethlehem because he was born there? Would he have said Nazareth where he grew up? Or would he have said Egypt where he first lived? I doubt many of us would pick Egypt as the place where Jesus was from, but it is where he spent the early portion of his life. This morning, we're going to take a fresh look at three vignettes from St. Matthew's Gospel that tell us about Jesus' early life on earth. There's the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents, and the return to Nazareth. So first, the flight to Egypt. Verse 13 of our reading today, after they had left, the they, by the way, is referring to the wise men who had just visited Jesus in the house where Jesus was staying in Bethlehem. And those wise men had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they'd gone back to their own country. After the wise men had gone, Matthew tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Why Egypt, do you suppose? Well, there are a number of possible reasons. First, it wasn't so far away. It was about maybe 75 miles to the border. There were also many other refugees from Palestine in Egypt at that time. Indeed, it's thought that there were possibly as many as a million Jews living there at that time. Another reason, as St. Matthew tells us, was that this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. This is a direct quote from the prophet Hosea. The original context was referring actually to the Exodus, God's rescuing of his people 
out of Egypt into the promised land. But as is so often the case in Matthew's gospel, we discover that there are double fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, with the second fulfillment being found in Jesus. Actually, you find this all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament. You see that it points not only to the things of the time, but so often it points to Jesus. And so we actually find Christ in the Old Testament again and again. I hope this new year that you will read your Bibles. I mean, read them from cover to cover. You can use the Bible in One Year app and it'll read it to you, or you can read it yourself. You can do daily, uh, the daily offices, and depending on how you do it, that could include the whole Bible. But you will see just how much Jesus is present from the very start to the very end. So in this particular case, there is more going on. For in it, we find echoes going back even further. Before Moses led the people out of Egypt, God had led them in to Egypt for their safety as they fled from famine. And you can read all about that in the last chapters of the book of Genesis and the great story of Jacob and his sons. Let me just remind you, those sons hated their brother Joseph and they wanted him out of their way. After throwing him down a pit, they sold him as a slave. But by the end of the story, when Joseph has risen to the second highest office in the entire land of Egypt, he has saved his family from starving we find some very haunting words. These words, it's in chapter 50, they come after Jacob, Joseph's father, has died, and the brothers are afraid. They're afraid that, that Joseph's going to have it in for them because of how they treated him. But listen to what Joseph says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Well, back to the New Testament, Joseph and Mary. I can't imagine how they must have felt fleeing to Egypt. But here, in the face of an oppressive enemy, they remain steadfastly obedient to God's leading. And we know how the story ends, but imagine for them in real time how that must have been. When we face setbacks, or find ourselves on the receiving end of people who intend us harm, people who sin against us, we should remember that even those things that are intended for harm, God can use for good. As we encounter the great biblical narrative of God saving his people, it is good for us to be reminded that history doesn't happen in a vacuum. Rather, it happens in a context. <clears throat> and with God's story, we see time and time again echoes of previous events, events that tell us something about what God is doing in our world. In these few verses from Matthew today, we find a striking parallel between Jesus and Moses. Both men spent their earliest days in the land of Egypt. Both saw the suffering of others and both went out to lead their people out of captivity. Well, 
that's the first vignette. The second vignette I want us to notice this morning is the account of the atrocities of King Herod, which is sometimes referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. Herod's order to have all the boys under two uh, killed was a heinous act of cowardice, fueled by fear and power. He was a particularly nasty piece of work. Herod killed his own wife and three of his sons. Uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us that Herod left strict orders that the notable men of Jerusalem be killed when the news of his own death were announced to make sure that there'd be lots of grief and weeping and wailing throughout the land. Can you imagine? Tragically, Acts of brutality such as these have been repeated time and time again over the centuries since. We've seen it in the purges of Stalin, the genocide of Hitler, the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and Rwanda. And today, countless Christians are persecuted for their faith. As we ponder the violence in our scripture reading and in our world today, we are reminded that notwithstanding that violence, with God, there is always hope. The ultimate purposes of God are sometimes revealed even in and through terrible suffering along the way. Now, of course, grief and suffering are never trivial. Matthew, St. Matthew is not saying, oh, it's not so bad. Not at all. In fact, he references another prophecy, this time from Jeremiah, now again doubly fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. That's the place where Jacob's wife, Rachel, was buried. Wailing and lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. Now that was true in the Old Testament, and it was true at the time of Herod's horrible edict. Just as Rachel wept as the people of Israel were led into exile, so here Matthew pictures that great matriarch of Israel weeping over the slaughter of these latest innocents. And yet, in the midst of the tyranny and the selfishness and the senseless killing, there is hope. The tears will be turned to joy. The mourning will come to an end. God hears the weeping of Rachel, of every Rachel, of every mother, of every parent, of every person. And he's not deaf to the cries of injustice today. He will come again in great power. So even in the midst of the weeping and the wailing, we are reminded that our God is sovereign. The one whose name is holy, Jesus the Savior, though in need of protection as an infant, is no longer weak or helpless. And the living God is bigger than any Pharaoh or Herod, terrorist or persecutor. Herod, like every sinful person before and since, could not thwart God's plans. And so we come to the third vignette this morning, 
the return of Jesus from his Egyptian exile. What becomes clear is that Jesus did not return to take on a pathetic dictator like Herod. Rather, Jesus returned to take on and destroy the ultimate enemy, the final enemy, death itself. Matthew tells us that this return of the Holy Family to Israel is once again a fulfillment of Scripture. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The fact that Jesus went to live in this rather unimpressive town is another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah, it's prophesied that the one to come will be like a twig from the stump of Jesse and will be despised and rejected. So if Jesus were asked, where are you from? And he said, Nazareth. Well, that was about as unimpressive a place as anyone could ever wish to come from. Later in his life, people actually mocked him for that. Can anything good come from Nazareth? In these three short scenes of Jesus's infancy and early childhood, Matthew shows us how each part has been prophesied and how in this extraordinary tapestry woven through the scriptures, God has been working his purposes out in order to bring salvation to the world. This Christmas season, we once again give thanks that Jesus, who began his life as a refugee in Egypt, leads us out of captivity, out of being slaves to addiction, sin, and even death, and into eternal life. The heart of God is one of great compassion, as again and again he acts to save his people through Moses and the prophets, and above all, in the Word made flesh, Jesus. But I want to return for a moment to my opening question. Where are you from? Jesus could answer from Bethlehem, from Egypt, from Nazareth. He was from all those places. But as St. John reminds us, he came from somewhere else. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus came from heaven. He transcends time and space. Indeed, Jesus is God with us, full of grace and truth. He is the great I am. He is God. So where does this leave us? How will you answer the question, where are you from? And I want to say this, ultimately, the question that matters this morning is not actually where are you from, but rather, who are you? From where do you get your identity? Is your identity caught up in where you are from, where you grew up, the school you went to, your work, your achievements, the grief that you bear? Are you defined by your gender, 
your sexuality, your past, your upbringing, your failures, your money, your marriage, your divorce, your children. These things are powerful. Often they do, to some degree, define us. But should they? Are we not more than any of the things, people, or events that shape our lives? As we reflect on who Jesus is, I hope that at the start of this new year, you will take a moment to reflect very deeply on who you are and whose you are. For the truth is, you are a person who is made in the image of God. Everyone who turns to Christ can say, I am a child of God, adopted, loved, forgiven, healed, restored. Sure, you have a past, where you are from, what you have done, or what has been done to you. These things will have affected who you are today, of course. But your true identity is found in who you are in Christ. Whether like Herod you have power and prestige, or like the wise men you have great learning, or like Mary and Joseph you are practicing faithful obedience, the humbling, leveling truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all need a Savior and so, with the shepherds, the wise men, together with all who have ever lived and will live, we are summoned to kneel at the feet of Jesus our Savior. And it is from the security of knowing who we are before God that we can make sense of our past and have hope for the future. After a year like no other, we do not know what this coming year will hold. There is much to be hopeful about and there continues to be much uncertainty. That is true for the world, for our nation and for us individually. What will 2021 bring for you? Will God call you to a new job, a new home, a new school? Perhaps you are right where you're meant to be. Maybe you have unfinished business to attend to. Maybe you are to work afresh at putting right that which is wrong in a relationship, at home, or at work, or in the church. Maybe God will call you to take on a new responsibility. Maybe God will have you rest a while and sit in his presence and ponder all these things in your heart. Maybe this year will be your last. At the start of a new year, there is so much that we don't know. But of this, we can be sure. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the prophets, 
The God who has acted in history and in time is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is Lord of all. And to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. As his children, no matter where you have come from or where you are going, you can know his love, his leading, his presence with you from this day forward. With St. Paul, as we read earlier in Ephesians, this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Amen.